welcome to another episode of No Easy Answers in Bioethics, the podcast from the Center for Ethics and Humanities in the Life Sciences at the Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Today's guests are Center Assistant Professor Dr. Laura Cabrera, Dr. Robin Bloom of the Philosophy Department in Lyman Briggs College, and Undergraduate Research Assistant Rachel McKenzie. Together, they have collaborated on research regarding psychiatric interventions, including pharmacological interventions, as well as neurosurgery, like deep brain stimulation. In this episode, they share some highlights from their internally funded project, which focused on the public perceptions of such psychiatric interventions. Hi, hello. I am Dr. Laura Cabrera, and I'm an assistant professor in neuroethics at the Center for Ethics and Humanities in the Life Sciences. And I'm Robin Bloom. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Philosophy in Lyman Briggs College here at MSU. I'm Rachel McKenzie. I'm a senior studying neuroscience. And we are here today to share with you exciting highlights from our ongoing research collaboration. So it all started at the end of 2015 when uh, Dr. Bloom and I got our Science Society at the State, also known as the S3 uh, internal grant here at MSU, and the ground or that project was looking at two psychiatric interventions. So we focused on psychopharmacology and we focused on psychiatric neurosurgery. And we were looking in particular at issues of values and public attitudes around these interventions, both in the academic setting and in the general public. Now, this was a perfect collaboration in a way because Robin has been interested in doing research in areas connected to um, RDOG and diagnosis of mental health, and I've been doing research in neuroethics, so this was a great way to combine our interests and expertise. And then the other big reason why we decided to focus on this was because psychiatry, in a way, deals or rather raises a lot of ethical issues. So if you think about what is a psychiatric disorder, and generally involves maladaptations related to mood, behavior, cognition, and perceptions. And then who decides what is a psychiatric disorder? Or when is it that um, a maladaptation so concerning that it becomes a disorder and not just something that we can you know, deal with and live with as a society? To so just think of homosexuality a few years ago when it was considered uh, a mental health disorder. Yeah, and I mean, one of the things about getting the S3 grant that was really nice is um, the grants are meant to support new collaborations, particularly interdisciplinary collaborations, but uh, it was also the first year for both of us at MSU, so it was really nice to get a chance to meet each other and find that we had things in common and then to get some support for getting a collaboration off the ground. So I'm actually going to talk a little bit about what we did in the year that we had S3 funding. First and most important, we hired Rachel, which has probably been the best decision that we've made uh, about any <laughs> collaborating. Um, so uh, once Rachel started working with us, we did a literature review to identify um, articles in the medical and bioethics literature on the one hand, and then uh, in the media on the other hand, and we developed a, a tool to code these um, articles to see what different issues were being raised. Uh, so we compared not just the academic, professional academic literature, but we, in looking at the media stories, wanted to get a sense of how the public felt about um, psychiatric 
in interventions. So we coded um, using the same tool um, comments on media stories in newspapers and, and magazines online. Um, that took a long time, and we are still analyzing and writing up the data. Um, so that was a, a large chunk of what we did during that year. And then the other thing that we did was we organized a one-day workshop, and this was in the fall of 2016, to bring together uh, potential future collaborators and people with an interest in the topic to present some of our pilot data and get feedback from them. So we included uh, scholars and graduate students from from the health sciences, the social sciences, humanities, medicine, and uh, ended up having a really rich and productive discussion. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit next about three of the papers that came out of this pilot project. So the first paper was looking at the professional literature, and that was because, well, that was the first data set that we uh, finished coding. And there were some results that we expected, but there were some that we just, we didn't, which that's what it's nice about kind of empirical research. So to start, the technology that's, the technology that we're discussing, or the intervention. So if we look at the psychopharmacology literature, things like Prozac, so antidepressants, or stimulants like Ritalin would be the two type of interventions that would be discussed the most. In the case of psychiatric neurosurgery, deep brain stimulation was by far the most uh, discussed intervention. That was really interesting too, because before we started working together, I had no idea what deep brain stimulation was. Yeah, and that, even though I've been looking at deep brain stimulation, this was the first time that I look at it from like a mental health, um, as used in mental health. Now, for those of you in the audience that might not know too much about what deep brain stimulation is, so deep brain stimulation is relatively new um, psychiatric neurosurgery intervention that has a long history, but the new form is, is recent, and is widely used in movement disorders such as Parkinson or uh, dystonia. And now it's, it's mostly investigational for psychiatric disorders, even though it has a humanitarian device exemption for obsessive compulsive disorder. And what it is basically uh, an two electrodes or one electrode um, in, planted in deep nuclei in the brain and it has a brain uh, pacemaker or like a battery and that's why some people talk about deep brain stimulation as being a brain pacemaker so kind of an analogy to a brain uh, to a heart pacemaker. Okay so that was a technology that was discussed the most. Now Another thing that was interesting to see from that data set was the type of advantages and disadvantages that were discussed. Percentually, the neurosurgical literature had more discussion of both advantages and disadvantages. And this would go from, in, in terms of advantages, it would be related to the reversibility and adjustability of, of the device, of the brain stimulation. And in terms of the disadvantages, it would be related to um, the invasiveness of the procedures, in, you know, it requires um, brain surgery, and then also connected to, to issues of direct modification of the brain. Now, there were two issues that were widely discussed in articles on the pharmaceutical interventions, but that they were somehow neglected in the neurosurgical articles, and that had to do with issues of medical professional professionalism and, and industry involvement. So in a way, what we thought and what we discussed mostly in the paper is 
are there things that we can learn from the big and rich literature on conflicts of interest within pharmaceutical industry that can be adapted to medical devices, conflicts of interest? And what are new areas that need to be addressed differently that are, in a sense, unique to, to the medical device industry? So another paper of ours that's currently a work in progress will be focusing specifically on public comments. After identifying the ethical issues present in these comments, our further analysis showed that there were a few concerns that were interrelated or often discussed together. The most prominent concerns have to do with aspects of medicalization and the use of alternative treatments to the drugs and the surgeries that we were focusing on in our analysis. Of particular interest were the issues of overprescribing and what actually counts as a mental health disorder. The issues with overmedicalization were understandably coupled with suggestions for treatments that didn't involve substantial risk, sometimes different pharmaceuticals, but primarily therapy. Overmedicalization and desires for alternative treatments were often discussed alongside medical profession issues, primarily mistrust of doctors and scientists and questioning whether the doctors really knew enough about the treatments and procedures they were prescribing. So far, these treatments have shown an interesting perspective on these questions. Um, they have the potential to tell us more about how the understanding and opinions on long-standing research methods and prescribing practices are impacting how the public feels about new treatment options, as well as how they're talking with their doctors. Rachel, you're the one who's been doing the most work on that part of our project for so far, so I'm really looking forward to seeing you know, what, what comes up. I, I remember when we were coding, uh, seeing a lot of these issues, but kind of getting a sense of what the big picture is, is going to be a lot of fun. Um, I actually asked Rachel and Laura whether I could talk about this third paper, because as a philosopher, it's the topic that's nearest and dearest to my heart. Um, there's a lot of discussion in the philosophical and bioethics literature about whether deep brain stimulation actually threatens people's personal identity. So as Laura described, deep brain stimulation involves implanting an electrode in somebody's brain that then essentially um, governs their, their brain activity. And there are some cases that have been reported where individuals who've undergone deep brain stimulation have started to act in ways that are not, um, that are new, that um, didn't occur before the surgery. So there have been a couple of case reports of people who have done things like develop a gambling habit or um, experience bouts of mania when they had never had that issue before. So from a philosophical perspective, the question is, is the electrode actually making them a completely different person? And one of the things that I think is really interesting about this is in our data set, in the academic literature, we saw all kinds of discussion about this in the neurosurgical literature, especially focusing on DBS, but almost nothing in the pharmacological literature, even though obviously drugs also influence the brain. And I'm wondering whether this is in part because the electrode is perceived as being more permanent than the drugs, even though it is not necessarily always switched on, or whether uh, because patients have to keep taking medications, whereas once the implant is in there, it's sort of perceived as being outside of the patient's control, whether these are some of the reasons that se this seems like so much more of an issue in, in the case of DBS than it does in the case of pharmacological therapy. Although, I mean, it's interesting, now that you mentioned it, that in the pharma 
literature, there's a lot of discussion, especially with Prozac, about changes to self. Right. Whereas in right. the neurosurgery, it's more about identity and personality. Yeah, and, and in the pharma literature as well, a lot of it is in the discussion of enhancement, so people deliberately trying to change themselves, whereas with deep brain, with deep brain stimulation, it's viewed as being sort of a side effect of the procedure and therefore not something that's welcome or, or wanted. Another interesting thing about this is that we didn't see any discussion of these philosophical issues like personal identity or agency in the public discussion. Instead, what we saw was a lot of discussions about personal responsibility, um, which we saw especially in the pharmaceutical literature and which we saw in the pharmaceutical literature um, written by academics as well. And I'll talk a bit more about that in a second. Um, the public did actually, in, in the context of talking about neural implants, the, people talked about mind control, but it seemed to be more of a political concern. So people would say things like, I wouldn't want an electrode in my brain because then Big Brother will know what I'm thinking, or Big Brother can make me do what the government wants. So it wasn't really um, seen as a medical function. And I think a lot of those comments were actually sort of at least partly joking, but I also think that they reflect sort of a, a deeper underlying concern about loss of control. So I think it'll be interesting to get into that. And then also with that paper, I had mentioned that personal responsibility comes up a lot in both the academic literature and the public comments, but almost entirely in the discussion of pharmaceutical interventions. So people are very concerned that um, instead of taking medications, people should be taking responsibility for their condition by doing things like changing their uh, diet or exercising or going to some form of talk therapy, or at the very least, even if they're going to take medication, they should be doing these other things as well. So um, we're still sort of wading our way through that part of the data, but there's some really interesting issues that are coming up. Well, now we've been collaborating for almost two years, and so now I would like to ask Rachel what has been her experience and if she has liked it so far. Yeah, so when I before I applied for, to be a research assistant, I assumed that neuroscience research was just sitting in a lab and looking through a microscope. Um, I wasn't expecting to be a part of a project that focused on the implications of research and new treatments. And the ethical perspectives and the focus on public opinion that I learned from being a part of this project helped me see new dimensions in my neuroscience courses. And it also helped me refine my research interests and my goals for after my undergraduate education um, so I could focus on science communication and science and society. And actually, I just feel like I need to interject here that, you know, as a Briggs student, you're seeing this in some of your classes, but it's really awesome that you're getting a chance to really engage in the hands-on, not lab-related, no microscope research, and just also to say again how wonderful it's been to work with you. Yeah, Rachel has been a really bright student collaborator. So, And so the, the other thing that we want to share with you is that our collaboration has not only yield uh, you know, papers and posters and presentations, um, but it has also allowed us to have the pilot data to submit our first uh, NIH, National Institute of Health, uh, grant. This was, uh, we were lucky in a way because last year they released the first call for grants specifically looking at neuroethics. So once that was released, I said to Robin, we have to give it a shot. We cannot lose this opportunity. And fortunately, she agreed that, yes, we, we should do this. Um, and so now we submitted our 
grant last week and as we continue finalizing uh, the publication of, of the papers that are still a work in progress, we will be doing that with the hope that we'll have uh, good news in a couple more months. Right, and that in a couple more years we'll be doing another podcast on that research. Exactly. Well, thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us today. Please visit us online at bioethics.msu.edu and follow us on Twitter at MSU Bioethics. This episode of No Easy Answers in Bioethics was produced and edited by Liz McDaniel.